Chapter 17, Sections 2 and 3 of J. B. Bewery's The Student's Roman Empire, Part 1. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The Student's Roman Empire, Part 1, by John Bagnell Bury. Chapter 17, The Principate of Nero, 54-68 to A.D., Sections 2 and 3. Section 2. The Ascendancy of Popeia and Tigellinus. Agrippina, with all her unscrupulous ambition, had a high conception of the imperial dignity of which Nero was totally devoid. After her death there was no restraint to hinder him from following his bent and indulging his theatrical and artistic tastes in a manner which set at defiance all the national prejudices of the Romans. His great desire was to appear in public, in tragic costume, and delight the ears of his subjects by singing and playing on the lyre, or to guide a chariot with his own hands in the circus. When Seneca represented that such acts hardly befitted the dignity of the emperor, Nero answered him with appeals to the superior culture of the Greeks, and the example of his uncle Gaius. Seneca and Burrus, seeing that there was no help for it, tried at least to limit the performances of the emperor to a select audience. A circus was erected in the Vatican Valley, and there a privileged number of courtiers were permitted to admire the skill of the imperial charioteer. But if his guides thought that he would be satisfied with this concession, they were mistaken. It only stimulated him to more public exhibitions. He was resolved to appear as a singer and an actor. He seized the occasion on which his beard was first clipped to institute a feast called Juvenalia to be celebrated within the palace. Numerous invitations were issued, and noble young Romans were induced to contend as singers and dancers for the prizes which the emperor offered. Nero himself descended on the stage with his lyre in hand, and a band of young men, called Augustiani, were enrolled to applaud the excellence of his singing. Burrus is described as looking on, grieving but applauding, 59 AD. In the following year the emperor instituted another feast, called by his own name Neronia, modeled strictly on the great Greek games, and to be held every five years. In the musical contests he took part himself. These exhibitions were far more harmless than the horrible gladiatorial shows, but they outraged national prejudice and are spoken of with disgust by Roman historians. Nero's ideals were altogether Greek, and he cared little for the spectacles of the arena. Brought up by Seneca in the Stoic philosophy, he had imbibed at least the spirit of the cosmopolitanism, and was not influenced in the least by the political traditions of Rome. The year 62 A.D. was a turning point in Nero's reign. Hitherto he had been under the constraint of Burrus and Seneca, who, while they indulged judiciously his licentious and frivolous tastes, had prevented him from exerting his imperial power to the detriment of the state. Thus the first five years of Nero's reign became proverbial for good government, the Quinquennium Neronis. The death of Burrus early in 62 AD was the beginning of a change for the worse. The influence of Seneca, deprived of his friend's support, immediately began to wane. It seems to have been almost impossible to exercise an important influence in political affairs, except in concert with the Praetorian prefect, and Seneca could not act with the new prefects, Sophonius Tigellinus and Phanius Rufus, as he had acted with Burrus. But his estrangement from his former pupil was chiefly due to the enmity of Popeia, 
who was jealous of the old courtier's influence over her lover. It was mainly due to Burrus and to Seneca that she had not yet succeeded in displacing Octavia and marrying the emperor. Burrus, when asked to consent to the divorce, had replied with characteristic bluntness, quote, If you put away the daughter of Claudius, at least restore the empire which was her dowry, end quote. Papea now endeavored to remove Seneca from her path, as she had before removed Agrippina. His riches were imputed to him as a crime, and he was charged with the design of corrupting the populace for treasonable purposes. It was said, too, that he had boasted his own superiority to the emperor in verse-writing and oratory. Nero's jealousy and fears were easily aroused, and his altered manner showed the philosopher the dangerous position in which he stood. He took the precaution of giving up all the outward pomp which he had hitherto maintained, and meditated a complete abandonment of public life. Of the two praetorian prefects who had succeeded Burrus, Rufus remained insignificant, but Tigellinus, a man of obscure birth and no principles, soon worked himself into the emperor's confidence by humoring and sharing in his vices. If he had only been the companion of his debaucheries, it might have mattered little to the general welfare, but he was also the instigator of cruelty. The tyranny which marked Nero's later years dates from the appearance of Tigellinus on the scene. The two acts which inaugurated it were the executions of Rubelius Plautus and Cornelius Sulla. On the appearance of a comet in the year 60, which was supposed to betoken the fall of the princeps, rumor spoke of Rubelius Plautus as the probable successor. Nero advised him, and the advice was equivalent to a command, to retire to his estates in Asia, and there he had lived quietly ever since. Tigellinus represented to the emperor that Plautus was still dangerous, in consequence of his reputation, his wealth, and the proximity of Asia to the Syrian armies. Accordingly a centurion with sixty soldiers were sent from Rome, with a eunuch of the palace, to remove the obnoxious noble, and Plautus, although he was warned by his friends beforehand, and might have fled to Persia, calmly awaited his fate. Cornelius Sulla, the husband of Antonia, daughter of Claudius by Patina, had been suspected of disloyalty four years before, and ordered to reside in Massilia. He was not rich, but his noble descent, his connection with the Claudian house, combined with the suspicions that he had previously aroused, decided his doom. After this specimen of tyranny, no senator could consider himself safe, and the tone of the senate now changes from independence to servility. Tigellinus and Popeia were triumphant, and Seneca left the field. The time had now come for Popeia to accomplish her great project, and induce Nero to divorce Octavia. Tigellinus helped her. A charge was got up of criminal intercourse with an Alexandrine flute-player, and the praetorian prefect conducted the investigation. Under torture, some of the empress's slave-women acknowledged the guilt of their mistress, but most of them denied it. On such evidence there was no pretext for putting the accused to death as Popeia wished, and Nero contented himself with divorcing her on the ground of barrenness. The palace of Burrus and the possessions of Plautus were assigned for her maintenance, and she was commanded to retire to Campania. But the universal sympathy which the lot of this unfortunate and innocent lady aroused among all classes proved her destruction. A rumor was suddenly spread that the emperor had recalled his wife, it was quite groundless, for Nero had already married Popeia, whose statues were erected in the public places in the city. 
but the people rushed in excitement to the capital, thanked the gods that the emperor had recognized the just claim of the true daughter of the Caesars, and thrust down the images of Popeia, while they bore those of Octavia in triumph. The soldiers of Tegelinus dispersed the masses when they gathered round the imperial palace. Popeia saw that while her rival lived, her position was insecure, and she easily persuaded her husband to consent to the execution of Octavia. Anicetus, the prefect of the fleet of Misenum, who had proved himself so useful in compassing the death of Agrippina, again supplied his services for the destruction of a second victim. He laid a confession before the emperor that he had committed adultery with Octavia, and was sentenced to banishment at Sardinia, where he lived in luxury and died a natural death. Octavia was banished to the island of Pandateria, where she was executed June 9th, 62 AD. Her head was cut off and carried to Papeia, who could now breathe freely. By a decree of the Senate, sacrifices of thanksgiving were offered to the gods, and, says Tacitus, it may be henceforward understood without special mention that, quote, whenever the princeps ordered banishments or executions, thanksgivings were paid to the gods, and the ceremonies which formerly marked prosperous events were then the tokens of some public disaster. End quote. In the following year, 63 A.D., Popeia bore a daughter to Nero. The Senate decreed her the title Augusta, which had not been granted to Octavia. But from this time forward, this title no longer possessed the same political importance which it had for Livia and Agrippina. Nero was overjoyed at the birth of the child, who was named Claudia, but she died after three months, and then his grief was as extravagant as his joy. Claudia was enrolled in the rank of a dive, like Drusilla, the sister of Gaius. Papea herself died two years later in premature childbirth, owing, it is said, to an accidental kick from Nero. She also was consecrated, the first empress since Livia who had received that honor. Under the new order of things, Papea and Tigellinus having taken the place of Seneca and Burrus, the luxury and cruelty which prevailed in the reign of Gaius and the gluttony of the court of Claudius were renewed. Nero's debauchery was practiced as publicly as his acting and chariot driving. Banquets were spread in all the public places of the city, and the emperor used the whole city as if it had been his private house. The luxury of these revels, devised by the genius of Tigenellus, was notorious, and the citizens were permitted to be spectators of the emperor's licentiousness. On one occasion a feast was laid out on a large raft, which was towed along by ships in the basin of Agrippa. The vessels were adorned with gold and ivory, and were rowed by men of abandoned character. On the banks of the basin stood disreputable houses filled with women of noble birth. Nero himself is said to have crowned his infamy by going through all the rites of the marriage ceremony, the veil, the dowry, the torches, the auspices, with a man named Pythodorus. Although the stories told by the ancient historians of the debaucheries of Nero and his court may be exaggerated, yet there can be no doubt that exhibitions of wantonness took place with a shameless publicity, which seems almost incredible to a modern reader. The extravagance and prodigality, which went hand in hand with the vices of the court, emptied the imperial coffers, and brought about a financial crisis, just as had happened in the similar case of Gaius. The earlier years of Nero had been signalized by a liberal and enlightened financial policy. Claudius had left him a well-filled treasury, such as Tiberius had left to Gaius, 
and he made a serious attempt to relieve the burdens of the masses upon whom the indirect taxes fell so heavily. In the year 58, a remarkable proposal was made by the emperor to do away with the Vectigalia, and as we should say, establish free trade. There is no reason to suppose that this measure was intended to be confined, as some have supposed, to Roman citizens, or to the city of Rome. Its object was both to relieve the people, and to set aside a mode of taxation which was attended with much injustice and fraud. There can be no doubt that it was proposed to make up the loss to the treasury by increasing the direct taxes, which fell upon the producers and capitalists, who would have profited by the remission of the duties. But the emperor's project did not get a trial. His experienced advisers represented to him that it would mean the ruin of the state. The opposition doubtless came from those privileged classes which had invested large capital in the farming of taxes, and who would have suffered if the duty on inheritances had been raised. But although this bold design fell through, it led to some important changes which alleviated the hardships of the taxation in its various forms. One measure commanded the publication of the exact amounts of all dues to the state, so as to prevent the tax collectors from exacting too much. Charges against them for extortion were to have precedence in the courts, and claims for arrears were not to be made after a year. The duties on corn imported to Italy from the provinces were lightened. The expenses which fell on the fiscus were heavy. Every year Nero presented sixty million sesterces, or 480,000 pounds, to the state. This sum was chiefly devoted to defray the cost of supplying the city with corn, but it also included an advance to the aerarium, which was never able to meet its claims without aid from the fisc. The wars in Armenia and Britain were also costly, over and above the ordinary expenses of maintaining the administration and the armies throughout the empire. The consequence was that, when the outlay of the court became extravagant under the guidance of Tigellinus and Nero's other licentious friends, the funds ran short, and the emperor was driven to resort to the same measures to replenish his treasury, as had been adopted by his uncle Gaius. The methods of delation and confiscation were again introduced. The rich were accused on false or trifling charges, and their possessions appropriated by the fisc. Among the first victims who were sacrificed were two rich freedmen, Nero's secretary, Deriferus, who had presumed to oppose his master's marriage with Poppaea, and the old palace, who had amassed an immense fortune, which, when he was deposed from his office, he had been suffered to retain. As Pallas had become wealthy by defrauding the imperial treasury which he administered under Claudius, there was no glaring injustice in confiscating his fortune. Seneca offered to place his wealth in the emperor's disposal, but the offer was refused. But the most important effect of the financial difficulties was the fatal measure to which the government resorted of depreciating the gold and silver coinage. This began as early as the years 61 and 62. Forty-five instead of forty array, and ninety-six instead of eighty denarii, were struck out of a pound of gold. The coinage never recovered itself, and from Nero's reign we must date the bankruptcy, which reached a climax in the third century. The immense amount of silver which was drafted from the empire to eastern Asia, in return for oriental luxuries, must be taken into account as a cause of the debasement of the silver coinage. Nero, further, robbed the Senate of their right of coining copper, a right the importance of which has been already explained. Section 3. The Great Fire in Rome 
If Nero succeeded in replenishing his coffers by fair means and foul, an event happened in 64 AD which demanded all the resources of the fiscus. Fires were common in Rome, but on the night of July 18 of that year, a conflagration broke out which in magnitude exceeded anything that had been experienced before. It began among some shops full of inflammable material at the southeast end of the Great Circus, where the valleys west of the Salian and south of the Palatine meet. Driven by high wind, the flames consumed the wooden benches and structures of the circus, and spread rapidly and irresistibly over the Palatine, the Velia, and the Esquiline, where, near the gardens of Masonus, their course was stayed. But in another direction also the fire made its way, and consumed many buildings on the Aventine, in the Forum Borium, and the Velabrum. It raged for seven nights and six days, and when all thought that it was over, it broke out again in the Campus Martius, destroyed the buildings of the Emilian Gardens, which belonged to Tigellinus, and spread to the foot of the Capitoline and the Quirinal. It was said that of the fourteen regions, seven completely and four partially were reduced to ashes. But it has been shown that this must be an exaggeration, although the damage done was enormous. Among the public buildings which were consumed were the Temple of Jupiter Stator founded by Romulus, the Regia of Numa, and the Temple of Vesta, the Temple of Diana dedicated by Servius on the Aventine, the Ara Magna ascribed by legend to Evander, all ancient monuments said to date from the time of the kings. More serious, and from a practical point of view, was the destruction of the splendid edifices of Augustus on the Palatine, the palace and the temple of Apollo. The new buildings in the Campus Martius near the Flaminian Circus had also seriously suffered. Numbers of priceless works of the great Greek sculptors, which no wealth could ever replace, perished in the flames, and countless memorials and trophies of Roman history must have been lost forever. In this emergency Nero showed himself in the most favorable light. He was absent at Antium when the fire broke out, and he returned to the city as the conflagration was approaching the palace. He left nothing undone in his attempts to quell the flames. He rushed about the city by himself, without attendants or guards, to the places which were most in danger, and when at length the fire ceased to spread, he did all he could to help and relieve the terrible distress of the homeless and shelterless thousands who had lost all their belongings. The public buildings and the imperial gardens were opened to receive them, and a temporary shelter was erected in the campus. The price of corn was lowered to three sesterces a bushel, and contributions were levied for the relief of the sufferers. The rebuilding of Rome was begun with vigor. It must have involved a vast outlay, and Nero was determined that the city should arise from its ashes, and on a more rational and salubrious plan. The mistakes of the old architecture were comprehended and avoided. The streets were made wider, the houses lower, and, partly at least, of stone. Arcades were built outside the new houses for protection from sun and rain. But the new palace, the golden house as it was called, planned by the architects Severus and Seller, was the wonder of the restored Rome. It was not so much the splendor of the house that excited wonder, as the fields, the ponds, the wooded solitudes, the views of the park. Italy and the provinces were required to contribute to the restoration of their mistress city, and treasures of art which adorned the cities and temples of the Greek lands were carried off to replace those which Rome had lost. There is no reason to suppose that the outbreak of this great fire was other than accidental. But the multitude suspected incendiaries, 
and a wild rumor was circulated that the emperor himself was privy to the burning of the city. Various motives were attributed for such a monstrous act. It was said that he wished to outlive the destruction of his mother's city, or that he desired to rebuild Rome and call it by his own name, or that his artistic sense was offended by the architectural ugliness of the city. It is also related that he regarded the ravages of the flames from the palace of Masonus with delight, and sang a scene from his own play on the capture of Troy. For this anecdote there may be some foundation in fact, but the charge of incendiarism, which even contemporaries brought against Nero, was assuredly false. He had nothing to gain and everything to lose by the destruction of Rome. The solicitude which he had always showed for the welfare of the populace, and the efforts which he made to save the Palatine, are hardly consistent with such a supposition. Nor is it conceivable that, at a moment when he was pressed by financial difficulties, he would have gone out of his way to burden the treasury with the enormous expenses required for the rebuilding of the city and the maintenance of the sufferers. The emperor had many enemies, whose interest it was to place him in the worst light, and we can easily understand that they either originated or fostered the rumor. But it was generally believed that incendiaries were at work, and there were police investigations which led to the arrest and punishment of a number of people, quote, whom the vulgar called Christians, end quote. Here for the first time the Christian sect appears on the stage of profane history, and the remarkable words in which Tacitus describes it deserve to be quoted. Quote, Christus, from whom this name was derived, was executed when Tiberius was imperator by Pontius Pilatus the procurator. The pernicious superstition, checked for the time being, again broke out, not only in Judea, its original home, but even in the city, the meeting place of all horrible and immoral practices from all quarters of the world. This description represents the popular belief that the Christians practiced all sorts of horrors in their secret assemblies such as cannibalism and incest. Those who were known to be Christians, and confessed the creed when they were charged with it, were first arrested, and some of these under torture, betrayed the names of many others who were secretly Christians, but were not known as such. The prisoners were not tried strictly on the charge of incendiarism, and Tacitus seems to have no doubt of their innocence of this crime, which could not be brought home to them. But as hatred of the human race was in popular credence imputed to Christians, they were thought capable of it. A considerable number were condemned, really because they were proved to be Christians, but nominally on the ground that they were incendiaries. They were put to death with mockery. Some, wrapped in skins, were torn to pieces by dogs. Others, arrayed in the tunica molesta, were set on fire to serve as torches by night. Nero gave up his Vatican gardens to the spectacle of these tortures, and at the same time exhibited a show in the circus there appearing himself dressed as a charioteer. The sacrifice of these victims soothed the exasperation of the populace, and the emperor's callousness even brought about a revulsion of feeling. The Christians of Rome were sacrificed because Nero required scapegoats, but the question arises, why were the Christians, who as yet had attracted little public attention, selected for the purpose? Contemporary literature shows that at this time, the Jews were objects of general hatred and suspicion, and it might seem more natural that they should have been suspected and punished by the government. It is impossible to answer the question with certainty, but it has been plausibly suggested that the Jews themselves may have shifted the charge from their own body upon the Christians, whom they hated bitterly. 
They might have been the more easily able to effect this through the influence of Poppaea Sabina, of whose leaning towards the Jews and their religion there is undoubted evidence. End of chapter 17, sections 2 and 3